this morning I invite you to read along with me from Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to begin in uh, chapter 4, and at verse 18. And as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And then in Matthew 28, and also beginning at verse 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, in in these next moments, we, we pray that you would open our ears and our eyes, our hearts to what it is that you may be saying to us. I ask that anything in in, in my delivery of your message that's a distraction would be overcome by your sense of, of the importance and the closeness that you have to us and how you speak to us and care for us and love us. Again, we ask that you would make us sensitive to your teaching today. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So this morning uh, is the final in our summer series that's been entitled Finding and Living Your Calling. In this series, we have been looked at how, we've looked at how God is calling each and every one of us, and we've looked at that he has called us to be loved by him, to belong to the church, to become more like Christ, to be leaders among men, to be a blessing to the world, to be sent by God, and today we're going to focus specifically on God's calling us to make disciples. Now, from this morning's text, we see that after spending three years of walking with Jesus and having seen him crucified and raised from the dead, Jesus commissioned his followers to become fishers of men, to to make disciples, and to teach them all that Jesus had commanded them. And they did. According to the book of Acts, the early Christians turned the world upside down. And the disciples of those early disciples continue to carry out this commission, and so it has been for 2,000 years. The church continues to spread and to flourish. And this commission is for each of us who are followers of Christ. So in in light of this, in light of this commission, we're going to look to see this morning a little bit about how does that apply to us as his followers. And I'd like to take a moment to read something that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, along this topic, beginning at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Though God was making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In these passages, Paul is telling us that all men are alienated from God because of their sin. And that was each one of us. We also were once alienated from God. But through the cross of Christ, we've now been reconciled to God. And as members of his kingdom, he has now commissioned us to be ambassadors to bring this message of reconciliation to the world. We are called to be fishers of men, God's ambassadors, and we're tasked to go into the world to reach those who don't know him. Those who are alienated from God, who are not a part of his family, to tell them how they too can have a relationship with God. And I submit to you that this is the primary task of the church. And since we are the church, this is our primary task. Now, we talked about the survey for a moment. We have been doing a little bit of work with Vital Church, and one of the things that they asked of us is that we would do a, a demographic study of our local surroundings, and we did. We went online and we were able to find some information, some, some study from, from our local area. And one of the things that caught my attention, when asked on one of the questions, what general church programs or services do you prefer? Now this was not, again, not of our church, this was our surrounding area. And they were allowed to pick from one of four choices. By a factor of almost two to one, the highest percentage answer was recreation. Now, I probably shouldn't have been surprised, but I was. 41% of those thought that the church should first and foremost be a place of recreation. Now, seeing this, my thoughts went back to something that I had read many years ago. And with some hunting, I was able to find it and track it down. And I'd like to take a moment to read something to you. It's called The Parable of the Lighthouse. On a dangerous seacoast, notorious for shipwrecks, there was a crude little life-saving station. Actually, it was merely a hut with only one boat. But the few members kept a constant watch over the turbulent sea, and with little thought for themselves, they would go out day and night, tirelessly searching for those in danger as well as the lost. Many lives were saved by this brave band who faithfully worked as a team in and out of the life-saving station. By and by, it gained notoriety. And as it did, others wanted to become associated with the little station, giving their energy, time, and money for the cause. So new boats were purchased, new crews were trained, the station, once obscure and crude, began to grow. The members felt that a more comfortable place should be provided, so the old hut was replaced with a new building to house the new furniture and equipment. With all the changes, the life-saving station had become a popular gathering place and its objectives had begun to shift. It was now used as a sort of clubhouse, saving lives and helping those shipwrecked really occurred. In time, a division arose among the members. Most of the people wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities and all involvements with the shipwrecked victims. You'd expect some still insisted on saving lives as this was their primary objective. But they were voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And so they did. As years passed, the new station experienced the same changes. 
It evolved into another club, and yet another life-saving station was begun. History repeated itself. Now, if you visit the coast today, you'll find a large number of exclusive, impressive clubs along the shoreline who have lost all involvement with saving of lives. Shipwrecks still occur on those waters, but now most of the victims are not saved. Every day they drown at sea, and so few seem to care. So very few. Sadly, this story is exactly what this demographic study showed. And for me personally, I have to admit that I found it a bit convicting as I reread it after all of these years. How easy it is for us to gradually drift away from our original calling. For many of us, if we were asked what is the mission of the church, we'd probably think of someone traveling to a foreign land, providing home, food, medicine for impoverished people, or maybe we'd think of someone in the inner city uh, working in a food kitchen or a, a food pantry. But something jumped out at me some months ago when I was doing a study on John's Gospel. And as it often happens, you, you read something that you've read so many times, but something jumps out at you. And chapter 12 records the story of a feast that was given in Jesus' honor at the house of Lazarus. And before the feast began, Mary, Lazarus' sister, took an expensive bottle of perfume and opened it, poured it on Jesus' feet, and with her hair, she wiped his feet. After seeing this, Judas and the other disciples commented that all of this money could have been used and given to the poor. Now, now at first glance, this seems right. It seems like the very natural thing to do, that a godly person would take some, an item of luxury and use that money instead for someone with need. You'd think, like, what could be godlier than that? And I have to confess, if I was there that day, I would have sided with the disciples on this. But Jesus responded to them and said, the poor you will always have with you. But what this woman has done would be told wherever the gospel is preached. Jesus' words cut across the grain of our thinking. What he was doing was actually pointing out a divine priority, a value system that stands above all of our earthly needs. In our world, material needs of people, physical health, and even life itself is paramount above all else. But in God's kingdom, there's something that stands above all of these, something that transcends all else, and that is our relationship and our devotion to God. The most important need that a man has is not material or physical. When we start to get a glimpse of this truth, it begins to unlock so many of the mysteries of God's kingdom. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told of the rich man? There was a, the ground of a rich man yielded an abundant harvest, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops, he said. This is what I'll do. I'll tear down the bonds and I'll big, build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This night your soul shall be required of you and then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. So let me take this parable, and I want to put it more in a 21st century context that, that applies to the church and to us as individuals. If we were to reach out 
to an impoverished people who are in great need and provide for them homes, food, health coverage, education, college tuition for their children, and meet every need that their family would need for all of their lives. But at the end of their lives, the Lord said to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. Let me ask you this. What good did all of those earthly benefits do for them? In Jesus' own words, he said, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but suffers the loss of his own soul? In my example, we're certainly being Christ-like, sharing God's love by providing for the needs of these impoverished people, no doubt. And there's organizations throughout the world that provide for material needs for people as well. But only the church is equipped to meet the primary need, and that's to put men in right relationship with God. According to Paul's writings in Romans, the real demonstration of God's love towards us is by his forgiveness and reconciliation through the cross of Christ. In Romans 5, he writes, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus, speaking to Nicodemus in John 3, said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God's love for mankind is demonstrated in that he has provided a way for men to be reconciled to him through the cross of Christ. Now, let, let me take a minute and talk about the basic gospel. No verse is better known than the one we just looked at, John 3, 16. In, in fact, most of us have memorized this since we were children. But what most don't memorize is what follows two verses later. When Jesus said, whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is already condemned because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The basic gospel says that whoever believes will not perish and is not condemned, but that applies to those who believe. What of those who don't believe? This is something a little bit uncomfortable to talk about or to think about. But we see here that the New Testament is very clear. Those who do not believe will not share everlasting life with God in heaven. What the Bible says is that they're destined to internal separation from God. Now, this is not very well taken in our modern culture. And sadly, it's not well taken even in some churches, but it is very sound biblical teaching. And for this reason, for this reason, there is an urgency for all of us as Christ's ambassadors to bring this message of reconciliation to a world that's separated from God. In fact, we're commanded by the Lord to do so. A couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, Elaine and I uh, attended a funeral service for someone who was a friend of ours, kind of friend that we only saw once every few years. He died at a relatively young age and he left behind a wife and a few children. When the children are younger, the wife made an attempt to, to bring the children to church, but the dad never attended. And that whole effort seemed in time to kind of fade away. The, the family had a small memorial uh, at the funeral for him, and they invited a minister to come in to speak a few words. And he read from John 14. 
For in my father's house there are many mansions, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? After reading the words the minister said to those that there at the funeral, in the funeral parlor in attendance, he said to them that Jesus was preparing a mansion for all of us and that he will return someday to take us to be with him. And when the message was over, when his eulogy was over, I sat there like a little bit disheartened and I thought that he had been kind of unclear and almost misleading in Jesus' words as if they applied to all people without any need for any reconciliation to God. This was quite frankly not the gospel message of the church is commissioned to bring. And sadly, it did nothing more than to bring a moment of false comfort to those that were in the audience. The authentic gospel message that we have been commissioned to bring by the Lord is that through repentance and accepting Christ as Lord, all men can be reconciled to God. Now, as believers, we are filled with the Spirit, and our natural response should be to love and to have compassion for those who are in need that we meet along life's journey. In fact, in 1 John, John says that if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? James writes, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. So we're not called to either share the gospel or to help people in need. It's both. The problem is, for most of us, is that we shy away from the first and focus mainly on the second. Unfortunately, Christianity is sometimes indistinguishable from many of today's charitable organizations that also meet social needs. We're reminded again of Jesus' words of caution. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but suffers the loss of his own soul? So the church as a whole and each of us as individuals, we're called to go into the world to make disciples. What are some practical ways that we can apply this. Few thoughts of mine. Number one, first and foremost, a discussion about the, doing the work of the Lord would be pathetically incomplete if it did not point out that it's God's Holy Spirit that directs and works through us in his service. Remember that God desires that all will come to repentance. He is with us when we're sharing the gospel. It's his desire. Pray that God will make you sensitive to his leading when he provides those opportunities for you. Number two, know the gospel. As John Gwynn mentioned a couple of weeks ago, there are so many resources, either by radio, podcasts, books, Bible studies, and most importantly, the Bible itself. Make an effort to know what it is that you believe. This will better equip you when you are sharing the gospel. Number three, we have a mission and we have a way of life. Jesus sends us into the world just as the Father sent him into the world. Our mission is to bring the gospel message of the cross to a lost world. Our way of life is to have, to, to have concern and care for all men simply because God loves them. If God so willed it, he could eliminate 
all human need and suffering, but for ways and for reasons that are far beyond our ability to understand, he does not. Instead, he commands that we, as his ambassadors, extend his love and his care through our own human efforts. Number four, maintain a healthy balance between the mission and the way. We don't want to be that person that people hide from for fear that they'll be cornered into a religious discussion. Knowing what we believe and why we believe it will prepare us for those opportunities when we can very naturally speak of the gospel message. Remember that we live the Christ-like way 24 hours a day, but the opportunities to share the gospel are just those, opportunities. Paul told the Corinthians that one plants, another waters, but that it's God who gives the increase. Remember that in sharing the gospel with someone, you may be the one who's planting the seed, or you may be the one who's pouring water on a seed that's already been planted. Be sensitive to how God may be directing you in the moment. Remember that we're not asked to have every conversation about Jesus end with a prayer of conversion. Personal story on this. When I was uh, right out of high school, I worked at a large department store, and one of my jobs was to take the freight elevator down to the loading dock to receive new goods that have come in. There was a teamster that worked on the loading docks. His name was Charlie. Charlie was a Christian. And whenever my coworker and I would go to the loading dock, Charlie would talk to my coworker about Jesus. Conversations would typically, as I remember, just one way. And I don't know if there was any interest in my coworker and what Charlie was saying, but I can tell you that I was listening. And I never said a word to Charlie, but I was listening. And I remember it to this very day. Charlie was planting seeds and he didn't even know it. But God knew. And those seeds were eventually watered by someone else that crossed my path years later and eventually took root. So I encourage you to trust God in how he may be using you. He may be using you and you don't even realize that he's using you, like Charlie. Number five, our mission field is just outside the door. We don't have to wait to be enrolled in an official church program to be a missionary. We are gods and ambassadors, and the mission field is just outside of our door every day. And in some cases, in some cases, even before we go out our doors, we're called to both make disciples and to serve. Be sensitive to God's promptings. He may be calling you to participate in an existing church program, or perhaps even a venture. Maybe he's putting something on your heart to, st to start a brand new way of service. Be sensitive to his leading, and through prayer, personal discernment, and maybe even soliciting the discernment of others, be sensitive to what God is maybe calling you to do. If you sense that God is urging you in a certain direction, be attentive and pursue it. And number six, finally, the social gospel is much more palatable in our culture. It's so much easier and so much more culturally acceptable to meet people's needs rather than engaging in a conversation about Jesus, the cross, and the idea of people being separated from God. We live in a society that praises social efforts, but is sometimes hostile towards Christianity's gospel message. 
And of this we should not be surprised. How else would we explain Jesus' words? If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. This morning, we're going to be celebrating baptism of a couple here who have decided to follow Christ. And for each of us, those who will be baptized today and for each and every one of us that are here today that are followers of Christ, we're members of God's family because someone somewhere took the time to tell us this good news. I encourage you today to take a moment to remember when someone first told you about Christ and take a moment to thank God that they responded to God's calling on their lives to be a fisher of men. Remember that it's been said that when we share the gospel, we are nothing more than just one beggar telling the other beggars where the food is. So, in closing, baptism this morning, some of this message may be brand new. For some, maybe you've heard this before, but sometimes you need to hear things a certain way for the pieces to come together a little bit. I invite you today that if you've never had that moment in your life when you've recognized that you are not rightly related with God, that you want to be a part of God's family, if you've never taken that moment when you've, in your own heart and in your own way, said, Lord, I want to be a member of your family. It only comes through the cross of Christ. We're alienated from God, but because of the cross of Christ, we can be reconciled to God. And I extend that invitation to all of you. If you've never made that, that, that personal decision, I encourage you to do so. Let's pray.